Boston and Boston Metro in New England, there's over 50,000 men and women of Albanian background within Boston Metro. So it's likely that you work with someone or uh, go to a restaurant or have a neighbor who has an Albanian background. Uh, spiritually, most Albanians come uh, and have little contact with the gospel, and so it's a, it's a very underserved population. I work with local churches and with a team of Albanian believers uh, organizing events and doing uh, social work with them and outreach and all kinds of things. And the goal is to, to see men and women come to faith and be discipled and be part of local churches where they can know God and love Him. So it's great to be with you this morning. Um, our passage is Psalm 130, and I'll read that. Psalm 130. Encouragement. 
Israelites, we're going to talk about crying out from the depths, God in the depths, and then acting in hope in the depths. So, first of all, crying out from the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This prayer comes from the depths. This phrase, out of the depths, is used a number of times in the Psalms and in Jonah, and it refers to the depths of the ocean. It's a, a picture of someone drowning in water over their head. Waves are crashing, currents are swirling, and the person is sinking. It's an expression of desperation, uh, a situation that's beyond their control and capacity. And what's interesting in the psalm is that it's purposely vague. We don't even know exactly what the psalmist is suffering from. And this is on purpose. The psalm is part of the 15 psalms that were sung every year on the journey to Jerusalem, the psalms of ascent. They're kind of like a mini psalm book or a, a devotional that's meant to fit the reality of people's lives. And so the author doesn't give the specifics of his situation so that we can fill it in with the specifics of our situation. Because in reality, when we're honest, the life of faith is lived most of the time not on the mountaintop, but in the depths. What are the waves that are crashing over you right now? What are the waves that you feel in the depths drowning? Maybe it's the reality of loneliness. You've lost loved ones because they've moved or passed away or because of conflict. And the loneliness at times is more than you can bear. Maybe it's relational challenges, conflict in your family, your marriage, in, in your workplace. You're not sure what to do about it. Maybe it's sickness, physical, mental. You or a loved one are facing one of the, the infinite things that attack us. Depression, diabetes, Alzheimer's, arthritis, alcoholism, addiction. It's reminded that the Diagnostic Manual for Medicine, the ICD-10, contains more than 70,000 disease codes. There's an infinite variety of ways that sickness hits us. Maybe financially things are so tight, bills are like the waves that keep coming at you. Maybe it's something from the past, there's trauma or abuse. I could go on and on and on and on, couldn't I? Because if there's one thing that we are familiar with, it is suffering. And we might numb ourselves by binging on television or food or sports. We, we may escape it for a week of vacation. But when it's quiet and we return to reality, we realize that we are in the of our heads. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. In the depths, prayer is not a ritual, and prayer is not polished. It's a, it's a cry, it's a plea for help. Notice something important here, though, it's, it's not just a crying out, it's not a, a crying of complaint, or whine, or a groan. And we're not just calling out for anyone to hear us. We are crying out to God. Our prayer is directed to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is in charge and in control. We plead for mercy from Him. In our world of suffering, we're surrounded by people who are crying, people who are broken and burdened by pain and loss. 
And many times they're crying out for someone or just simply crying. Spend a couple days each week in an Albanian senior center, kind of similar to this, in Braintree. And I encounter there men and women who are facing the, the, the pains of um, aging, they're facing the trauma of, of losing loved ones, they're facing the challenge of adjusting to a new culture and an old age, lots of things. And yet most of them don't have a God to cry out to. And daily it reminds me of the good news that we have a God to whom we but notice that the depths in which the psalmist finds himself are not just related to suffering, but also there is sin. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, this prayer is a repentant prayer. It, it accepts that spiritually we are in the depths as well. If the suffering we face are the waves that crash over us, then our sin is like the undertow that swirls around us and keeps us from getting foothold and redirecting ourselves. In one way, all of the suffering we face is directly related to sin. It was the sin of Adam and Eve that broke creation, that corrupted everything. But we're not just talking about sin in general. We're talking about our sin, the ways you and I contribute and play an active role in the world of sin. And sometimes we're in the depths directly because of that. Sometimes our addictions have caught up with us. Sometimes we've been lying and we've dug ourselves a hole that we can't get out of. Sometimes our complaining and bitterness has pushed others away. But even when our suffering is not directly related to our, person, our personal sin, our cry to God is still humble and repentant. It acknowledges that we have a spiritual problem. The psalmist uses the word here, iniquity. It's a word we don't use too much in modern language, but it's the idea of being morally crooked or bent. It's, it's this truth that we don't act or think or speak or desire as we should, and we act, speak, and think and desire ways that we shouldn't. So it's things like greed instead of generosity. It's quickness to anger instead of being quick to listen. It's impulsivity and self-gratification instead of selfless service. The psalmist acknowledges that if God were to check off and mark iniquity, he could take a, take a tally of our sin. No one could see. Not a single one of us. If his grace and mercy was based on what we deserve, then we would have no right to ask of him anything. No hope of help in our situations. So because of our suffering and sin, we cry to God for mercy. This is the real and honest posture of a Christian, often in the depths. And if you find yourself today crying out to God these days from a, a lonely house or a hospital bed or a sleepless night, then know that you are in good company with the people of God. Throughout history, God's people have done this, and in this they have found and met the God of the depths. This is my second point. See, the, the psalm is filled with God. The name of God is used eight times in these eight verses. Eugene Peterson says, Psalm 130 immerses suffering in God. The suffering is spoken in the form of prayer and shows specific knowledge of God as a personal redeemer. God is so personal that we can, 
in an intimate relationship with him, and God is redeemer, so that we may be helped by him. God in the depths is personal. He's not a far-off deity. He's not an abstract judge who's too busy to deal with your problems except to judge them. He's a personal God who interacts with you, who hears your cry. He's attentive, and he does things. He is the living God, not an idol, not a figment of our imagination. And notice that God speaks. In verse 5, we are called to hope in God's word. We believe scripture, scripture is God speaking to us, and through his word, God is speaking just as he does in this passage. So God is personal, but God is also Redeemer, the name that had of the church, right? It's a, a, a proclamation that he is Savior, he is Helper, he is Deliverer, even at a cost to himself. And isn't this incredibly important that God is not just personal, but God is also the one who acts and saves and moves? The idols of the world around us are the ones, and the ones that we often pursue, things like money or success, or comfort, those are things that we serve, things that we work for, but don't do anything for us. Don't we want a God who, who does something when we cry, who doesn't just hear us, but acts and moves and works? Well, this is the God of Scripture. This psalm emphasizes primarily God's work in saving us from our sins and iniquities, because these are the root of the problem. These are the obstacles to us, for us with a relationship with God. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? For with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The God that we cry to in the depths doesn't keep a tally of our iniquities. He's full of forgiveness. Verse 7 and 8 we read, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. This, these two phrases give us a picture of God's heart and his ability. His heart towards us is steadfast love. A love that is unwavering, that is not dependent on us, that's not, uh, that, that keeps its promise. A great example is the kind of love reflected in a couple that's been married 60 years in sickness and health, in the midst of trouble and trial, and even in the midst of Alzheimer's or dementia, keep loving one another. Covenant love. And this is how God looks at us in the midst of trials and challenges. He's not tired of you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not giving up on you. He is full of tender, mercy, compassion, committed love. And thankfully, his love for us is matched by his ability. With him is plenteous redemption. He's full of salvation. Often we experience with family or friends or loved ones the moments where in love we want to help, we want to change something, but we find ourselves powerless. Many times we have love, but we don't have ability to do something. Not so with God. He loves us and is powerful and able to bring about salvation. The writer of the psalm knew God as his personal redeemer. He had a relationship with God and experienced his help in times of trouble, but still he was looking forward with God's people for something else. He was waiting 
for a fuller experience of God's salvation. And we see a picture of this in verse 8. He says, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. So as the promise, the, the hope of the Redeemer, the hope of the Messiah, that, that one day the Savior would come to bring about full salvation. And we celebrate this this morning. The coming of Jesus, who is God's salvation, who is God personal, who is God with us in the depths. Jesus experienced it all. He was a baby in a manger, refugee toddler in a foreign country, a, a child listening to his parents, a poor man without a home, tempted and hungry, touching lepers, eating dinner parties, weeping at a funeral, convicted of a crime he didn't do, forsaken by his friends. Jesus was the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And so because of this, we have a God who comes into our depths and experiences it, just as we would. We do. He is God with us. But think about the fact that it's not more than just a historical fact. It's a present reality for us who believe that Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, walks with us when we are in the depths walks with us in our suffering. This is the testimony of God's people. It's mysterious, it's mystical, it's, it's, it's this reality that's more real than the things that we can touch, that God is with us personally in the depths. Have you experienced that? But not only is Jesus Christ present with us in suffering, he's also our Redeemer. He's the one who accomplished for us salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Because of him, we have uh, reconciliation with God. We're saved from our sin. We're given forgiveness and peace with God now and for eternity. But there's a tension, isn't there? There's this reality to our lives that we've been talking about God saving us from our sin, but we can ask, well, what about God saving us from our suffering? God has accomplished forgiveness for us at the cross. He's done all that's needed for peace with God. But yet we don't experience the fullness of that salvation yet. We're still stuck at times in death. Still find ourselves alone or in a hospital room, sick or in sorrow. We wrestle with our sin. We still are hit by wave after wave of suffering. We find that sometimes God does miracles. He intervenes for healing or help. He finds a new, provides a new job or a new marriage. Sometimes he restores relationships or soothes sorrow and trauma. Any of us can testify of the many times that God has shown up for us. But other times, he doesn't. For reasons that only our God knows, we are left in the depths, and one day we and those we love will pass through the depths as we walk through death. So the promise of verse 8 is still our hope. God will redeem his people from all its iniquities. One day, Jesus Christ still will come and restore all things and make all things right, and there will be no more tears, but only joy eternally in the presence of God. But for now, we find ourselves often in the depths, and this is the Christian life, waiting on God to fully accomplish for us that which he has begun in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us practically? Well, this psalm teaches us a number of things, and I'll name three of them. 
First of all, we, we mentioned that which we said in the beginning. We cry out. We don't just cry. We cry out to God. Just as we are, in honesty and reality, He is with us in the depths. He sees and understands. He looks with compassion and love. And so we cry out. Secondly, we wait and watch. Verses 5 to 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This is a beautiful section that describes our posture, but waiting and watching doesn't often feel very beautiful. It's hard. It involves anxiety and tears, weeping and sorrow. We wonder sometimes if that which we wait for will ever come. The watchman who stood for the, on the walls waited for the morning to come as they were the guards who kept watch all night. And their role was very important. If the enemy came, they alerted the city and that they had to stay awake. And so you can imagine by the morning they were growing tired and they were wondering if the sunrise would ever come. Some of you may be feeling this today. You've been waiting on God for a relationship or healing in your body or in your heart, waiting on God to do a work in your family or in your ministry, and it's hard. Maybe you've grown, grown weary and lost hope. Well, this expression about a watchman waiting for the morning reminds us that our waiting is expectant watching. It, it's not the waiting of maybe something will happen. Maybe I'll win the lottery, or maybe my sports team will win this year. No, we say the sun will rise. The morning will come. This is the watching and waiting of faith that knows the sun will rise. Weeping may tarry through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Because we have a personal God who is full of steadfast love and plenteous redemption, who has begun the work of salvation through Jesus Christ, and has promised that one day he will come, we wait and watch, not wondering if God will do it, but when. Are you waiting like a watchman for the sun to rise? And finally, we call others to hope with us. Notice that in the psalm there is a change of voice. In verses 1 to 4, the psalmist is talking to God. In 5 to 6, he switched to describing himself. And then in verse 78, 7 to 8, he talks to others. He begins to speak to the community, to, to those of faith and maybe those who have real faith. He's encouraging them and challenging them. He's, he's still in waiting. He's still in the depths. But from the depths, he testifies and proclaims. We need to do this for one another spur one another on to hold on to faith and to God in the midst of the challenges we face. And this is an incredible calling for you who are suffering, whether from circumstances or, or challenges, that this is what we need from you, for you to continue to call out to God in your depths and invite us and call us to do this as well. And this is also what the world around us needs, isn't it? This is our, our witness. Because the truth is, is that behind the polished lives of our neighbors or co-workers or family members and friends, regardless of their financial situation, 
whether political perspectives or their cultural backgrounds, they are facing or will face suffering. And they are in need of a God to call out to, who will show them mercy, walk with them, and redeem them. A few weeks ago, my wife and I spent some time with an Albanian woman and her adult children who were devastated by a diagnosis of, of ALS, debilitating sickness. And as we ended our conversation and our time together, uh, I acknowledged being helpless to do much, that there's nothing that we could change, little that we could do to help, and that all I knew to do, all that I could do was this, to call out to God, for them and with them. So I read Psalm 130, and I prayed for them. And it felt small, and it felt helpless, and it felt weak. But isn't it exactly what I need, and what they needed in our world needs? The greatest and most powerful thing that we can do, to call out to a redeeming personal God in the depths, and to urge and teach others to do the same with us. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. O people of God, hope in the Lord, with the Lord there is steadfast love and plenteous redemption. He has redeemed his people from all their iniquities, and he will finish the work of salvation that has begun in our world and in your life as surely as the sun will.